The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Deal of the Week. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. If you've missed any of our past episodes, you can download every one of them uh, for free on iTunes. That's Bloomberg Deal of the Week. Of course, this is a podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. You can also stream all of our episodes at Bloomberg.com backslash audio and scroll down to find Deal of the Week. So thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the first 12 episodes of the show. Uh, For those of you who are dedicated listeners, you know the format of the show Typically is first a Bloomberg reporter who talks about uh, the deal of the week. And then we have a guest uh, who is usually a professional in the world of mergers and acquisitions. Well, you also may have noticed that while we're pretty close to 50-50 on gender in our reporter segments, our guests have been heavily skewed toward men. And that's not a coincidence. M&A is a male-driven business. Whether we're talking about CEOs or investment bankers or lawyers, to quote James Brown, it's a man's world. Uh, So that leads us to our guest this week. She's a partner at the Female Founders Fund, a venture fund that invests in startups all founded by women. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about seed investing on this show, which is sort of like a pre-M&A function. So we'll speak to Sutian Dong in just a few minutes on that. But first, it's time for a weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And this week, we're talking about an audacious idea. That's what Citigroup analysts are calling it. And yet, they're proposing it anyways. We're talking about Google, now called Alphabet, buying the insurance giant AIG. This is a company with an enterprise value of more than $100 billion. And joining us now to explain is Bloomberg Insurance reporter, Shanali Bassett. Hi, Shanali. Hi, Alex. How are you? Uh, Good. Thank you for joining us. So does this idea make any sense at all? So like you said, it's a lot of money. The other thing about insurance is that it's regulated by every state. So it's a, it's a very high hurdle to entry. However, AIG is still one of the biggest insurance companies in the world, and it still is investing very heavily in tech. They just in, And also um, tech, big data, and also they have a startup venture capital kind of fund as well. So does the idea make any sense? Like, why would Alphabet want to do this? Well, they've actually tried to kind of enter insurance in a small way before. It's called Google Compare. It's a price comparison website for auto coverage. It's been going a lot slower than they expected, so it's kind of surprising to see Citigroup say, hey, they should go in in a bigger way. <laughs> this business that's this. not working, you should spend $100 billion on. Exactly. So in that way, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. It, with that said, too, what the Citigroup analysts are saying is fintech is really ripe for innovation, and it really is. I mean, if you look at right now all the fintech companies out there, like Lending Club, for example, or OnDeck, I mean, they're doing pretty poorly also. So will Google want to bet on this? Maybe they can do it better than what's already out there. And has the analyst explained exactly what it means by innovation? In other words, what could Google or Alphabet add to this world of insurance or financial technology that AIG isn't doing in its current iteration? 
Right. One of the big critiques was that Google doesn't understand the regulatory landscape. So it's not like it could sit there and figure out what it needs to do state by state any better. AIG also has like a $350 billion um, in balance sheet of invest- invested assets. Can Google figure out how to invest that any better? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. They haven't had to do that. So, you know, with that said, I don't know that Google can do what AIG does better than what AIG does. But AIG does need to take a lesson from Google. So let's, let's take a step back here. AIG has been in the news for months now. Can you bring us up to speed on what's going on at AIG? Sure thing. So in October, Carl Icahn and John Paulson, both billionaires, they have said that AIG needs to really split apart and really focus on property casualty coverage, which is airplanes, homes, automobiles. They also, right now, they cover homes and they cover the mortgages and they also cover life insurance. So all of those things have made AIG what Carl Icahn calls too big to manage. So they said, hey, let's split up. They recently won nominations from AIG to the board. And so the CEO is under they, a whole they lot meaning pressure. Who, who recently won nominations to the board? John Paulson. John Paulson. John Paulson and Carl Icahn and Carl put Icahn. a representative on because he said he was too busy with all these other campaigns to be on himself. Okay. So then, recently, AIG had reported two straight quarters of losses, so it's not—it's still a rough road ahead. They said they'd invest a whole lot into technology and data to try to improve underwriting, and they said they would exit a whole bunch of soured investments like hedge funds to kind of improve returns on the asset side while shedding assets all over the place to try to free up $8 billion worth of capital. And AIG has shrunk by more than half since its peak, correct? More in, than half. In, in, in market value size. So, so what, obviously, I think the last time the general public heard about AIG was like five, six years ago when AIG was blamed for bringing down uh, the country's financial system. What has happened since, let's say, 2009 to today in AIG's business that has caused the company to, to continue to sink? They did sell back, uh, sell a bunch of assets. They actually paid the government back at a more than $22 billion profit. And then now they've been working to kind of turn around the ship and really improve operations. And, you know, last year the stock performed pretty well. The new CEO took charge in September of 2014. This year, not so well. The whole market's bad. They're invested in bonds and hedge funds. And we'll see now, now that the activists are in charge, they've also cleared a lot of senior talent out and committed to selling a lot of underperforming assets. So really, the next few quarters are going to be really telling on whether this company has turned around from 2008. All right, so let's go back to this idea now of Alphabet buying AIG. So the idea, as I understand it, is Alphabet teaming up with an investment bank, right, to keep Alphabet away from some of the volatility of insurance liabilities. Is that right? So the funny thing about this, too, is we were talking about it all morning. Which investment bank? Right? Right. Investment banks are also having their own troubles right now. And the thing is, insurance right now, frankly, is a troubled business. Allstate has had to raise rates for very many quarters now to try to kind of keep up because people are driving more. And also, all these different, there's so many competitors. Chinese companies and Japanese companies are buying U.S. insurance companies to enter the world's biggest market. So it's a very pressured business. Why would an investment bank want to enter it? So let's stay on that theme for a little bit. Again, part of the rationale about why Alphabet would want to do this, or maybe why AIG would want to sell to Alphabet, is that the insurance industry in general needs a shakeup. That's sort of what the Citigroup analysts were saying. So what is it about the insurance industry that needs a shakeup? So the insurance industry, and I've been trying to wrap my head around this myself, they've been saying for years now that they need technological innovation. What does that mean for the insurance company? I don't think that most insurers really 
know yet until they see what these products look like. There's this one company called Lemonade, for example. They have different executives from Ace and AIG, and Sequoia funded them last year. It was the largest seed funding in the U.S., or no, in globally last year, according to CB Insights. And, you know, I think that shows that people do want different ways to enter the insurance industry. I just don't think that it's been proven how it would work out yet. And, and so... The insurance industry needs technological innovation because technology companies can provide better data about risks. Is that the main thinking behind this? Data about risks and risk management, how to price different claims. Think about it this way. One of the new hottest things in insurance right now is cyber insurance. Right? How if you get a cyber attack, how do you even price the policy when we don't really have a hundred years of data? Right. Right. And then also say, you know, self driving cars, once those enter the industry, how do you create products for that? Uber policies, how do you create policies for the shared economy? So the insurance industry is reacting to different things in technology. There's a multi billion dollar shared economy industry Airbnb. How do you how do you kind of react to the new world of technology with insurance and how do you cover products and risks that haven't really been seen before? And so last thought on this, can you sort of give us your best bet on whether this idea of Alphabet actually buying either AIG or any insurance company of any scale, is this real or is this purely some sort of hypothetical, fictitious idea? It's definitely not a this year sort of thing. But let's see, maybe after some of these startups do start playing out and we see some more successes with tech and insurance, then, you know, a couple years down the road, let's see if Google thinks it's worth crossing the regulatory hurdles to get into buying AIG. Bloomberg Insurance reporter Shanali Basik, thank you very much for exploring this audacious, if not purely hypothetical, idea. Okay, I want to bring in Sutian Dong, partner at Female Founders Fund, or F-Cubed, if you want to get nerdy about this, a seed stage investor fund that focused that focuses on technology companies founded by women. Uh, so Sutian, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so first, what exactly is Female Founders Fund? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, uh, we are a New York-based seed stage firm investing in what we believe will be the next generation of large technology businesses founded by women. So the uh, brief history of the firm is that we were founded in 2014 with this whole thesis that there was this new generation of, of companies being built by women that we thought could be really big businesses. Uh, we thought that we could create a great portfolio of companies by uh, focusing exclusively on women-led businesses, by providing differentiated resources for them uh, post-investment, and by realizing some of the really interesting network effects of having these women collaborate with each other, whether it is on the customer introduction side, on the recruiting side, or you know, in various parts of... Uh, of scaling a business that that may not come naturally, especially for first-time entrepreneurs. And I know you're, you're fairly new to Female Founders Fund, uh, so two questions for you: one, what led you here, and two, uh, if you feel comfortable talking about it, can you sort of give me the origin story behind the you know sort of the why behind why this thing started? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the quick background on me is that before joining Female Founders Fund, which uh, I am exactly a, a month and a half in, I spent uh, a number of years at a firm in New York City called First Mark Capital, which is also an early stage internet and software investor. And while I was there, um, you know, I, I started at First Mark uh, at a time where I think the the New York City ecosystem, especially as it related to technology startups, was relatively nascent. And and didn't really look like anything um, like today. Two thousand eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yeah. and uh, and what I saw over time is that you know you did see more women starting businesses and more women come in to pitch, but I didn't see a lot of these women uh, women led businesses get funded, and that made me. Uh, made me think that there was an opportunity to really focus on supporting women entrepreneurs exclusively. And then at the same time, very much in parallel, my partner, Anu, who had uh, an operating background prior to, to starting Female Founders Fund, had found that the resources for her as an entrepreneur weren't exactly what she wanted or what she looked for as uh, as a female leader in, in technology. Anu was your partner at Female Founders Fund. Exactly. Right. So maybe you can tell her story then. Do you know sort of the why behind why she started this? It was really that we saw this this new wave of women starting businesses that we thought were not just lifestyle businesses. You know, you run it for cash and sell it for a, a decent amount later or, or run it into perpetuity, but that there was – there are these businesses that could be billion dollar opportunities uh, that I think the the current state of venture wasn't quite recognizing and funding and supporting appropriately. In other words, you're basically saying that this was founded more as for a a financial opportunity rather than to right a societal wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We are not a nonprofit. We are a venture fund who you know has we have fiduciary duties to our limited partners to earn money for the business. So let me let me take a step back for when you were investing uh, at First Mark in, in in companies that were not just founded by women. You said some of them or many of them did not get funded. Do you think that was linked to the fact that the founders were women? I, I wouldn't say that. No, I'd say that over time you saw more and more businesses get started by women. And because Firstmark was a Series A investor, we saw fewer of those companies come through the pipeline as the the funnel for investments. Uh, you know, the, the number of companies that receive seed financing is smaller than the number of companies that receive Series A financing. So as a function of that, we didn't see that many, as many women as we would have liked come through the doors. And because there wasn't a focus necessarily on ensuring gender parity in the portfolio, which is not uncommon for most firms. Most firms are looking for uh, to back folks that they think are starting big businesses. We just didn't end up investing in as many female founders as obviously at Female Founders Fund were, were focused on supporting them. And so just talk a little bit about your fund in terms of what size of investment are you typically making? How many companies are in the portfolio? That type of thing. Sure, sure. So we as a firm invest in approximately 10 to 12 companies a year. To date, uh, since inception in 14, we've invested in 23 companies. Typically, we are uh, part of the seed syndicate, so part of the first round of institutional financing that a company raises. Our typical check size is about 100K with reserves for follow-on. And uh, we 
though we don't lead the deal, which means we don't we don't price the the company, we take a pretty active role in ensuring that the seed syndicate and the rest of the investor base is going to be value add to the company. And we also uh, take a very proactive approach in establishing the right relationships with larger funds that can provide financing at the Series A, Series B, and beyond. So this is like Shark Tank for women, really, for an 100K seed investing. Uh, <laughs> <So> <laughs> Not not as high pressure, I think, when you come to pitch us, yeah. but but yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's really uh, it, it's really a, a new experience coming out and sharing your story and getting lots of questions and, that you might not have expected. And how are you finding the founders? Are you finding them, or are they finding you? It, it's both. So we are uh, we are not industry specific. So we are pretty industry agnostic, and we've invested in companies that have worked in industries such as fintech, healthcare, IT, down to e-commerce, vertical marketplaces, HR tech, food, social, enterprise SaaS. That being said, we have companies come to us because they know that we have uh, sector expertise in in food-related startups, for example, or they've read about us in um, some of the various press mentions. And then alternately, we, uh, we see companies trying to create interesting startups in in areas that we have interest in, like fintech or healthcare IT, and we'll, we'll reach out to those. So look, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is to address this topic of women in finance and entrepreneurship and technology head on. And it must be something that you think about and, and deal with, you know, fairly frequently. Just I'm curious, give us your take on the current landscape in, in terms of how far have we come where you know, not just as entrepreneurs, but really doing what you're doing also, even as a female investor. Are, are we close to a level playing field yet? Are we nowhere near a level playing field? Oh, I think we've gotten a lot better over time. But again, there's a long way to go. The conversation around uh, supporting female-led businesses and supporting and identifying these female founders early is only a conversation that is uh, becoming louder and, and having more voices join. But we are nowhere near parity in terms of the number of women-led businesses that are being financed. For example, we uh, at the fund, we track and we actually uh, publish a study on a biannual basis about the number of female-led startups that that have received Series A funding in the past six months. And from you know from 2013 to 14, we saw the number in New York approximately double. And then from 14 to 15, uh, it grew uh, less significantly, but in, a, in an environment that was much more challenging to raise money than what you saw in previous years. So we're hopeful that the and, and we're, we continue to be excited about women-led businesses raising financing and hopefully growing to be very attractive acquisition or public market opportunities. But in absolute numbers, we're nowhere near parity. And is that because you fill in the blank? Why is that? It's hard to point to a specific reason, right? Uh, some people talk about the the pipeline problem where you don't have, and in the pipeline problem, sometimes you can point even as far back to uh, supporting women, uh, students in STEM, and supporting uh, computer science education very early on, and then it goes all the way up to to the fact that historically, large businesses have not had many female founders. So the people who spin off and start businesses from there tend to be not female as well. It's hard to point to any specific reason as, hey, if we address this, then we will address the gender parity problem in tech. But I think that because a lot of 
a lot more eyeballs and brains are thinking about this issue and trying to proactively create programs that, you know, will will increase computer science education within schools, will increase the uh, the support for female entrepreneurs who are looking to leave large, uh, large companies and start their own thing. The initiatives that people are undertaking to address this problem are as varied as, I think, some of the potential nodes which these problems stem from. So as you're talking to the various entrepreneurs and the companies that you're putting money into, and this topic of female founders comes up, I'm curious, is the general sense among the people that you're speaking to, meaning among the founders themselves, one of optimism or one of pessimism in in terms of this culture has gotten a lot better for me, I feel much more comfortable, or God, I still feel like an outsider here? Sure. I'd say it's definitely one of optimism. I think what you see now with the number of women starting businesses and the number of women scaling businesses that you see really a diversity of experience. So on one end of the spectrum, you'll see uh, women who don't have trouble raising and don't feel like gender has been an issue at all in in recruiting or in raising financing for their businesses. And on the other end, you will see people who have had a significant amount of trouble that they may attribute to their gender or uh, the type of business or the industry that they're starting a company in. So let's talk about a couple of the companies that you have invested in. Are there one or two that really stand out in your mind is particularly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So to date, we've invested in quite a few marketplace businesses. And within that, um, we've invested in marketplaces in food, in in pre-owned and sample furniture, in uh, in marketplaces to connect students to part-time work. And I'll, I'll speak to one in particular called Way Up. Uh, and Way Up is a company where they, they have a marketplace that connects uh, students, university students on one hand, with internships and uh, part-time work. And then oftentimes entry-level positions with companies on on the other side. And the company itself was started by a woman named Liz Wessel, who had run a a forum of sorts while she was an undergrad, excuse me, at UPenn that did very much the same thing. She went on to work at Google, uh, went to Google India, and then came back and decided to pursue this opportunity full-time. She is somebody that that we saw, and, and specifically my partner Anu, met and and really thought that this was somebody who understood the marketplace problem and was really the uh, the audience that she was selling into. This uh, way up then went on at post our investment, then went on to join Y Combinator, which is a which is the the leading accelerator program in the U.S. Uh, based out in the in the Bay Area, and has since raised. Uh, uh, a Series A round and um, and is scaling very quickly across universities in the U.S. You know, this is a business where I I think her her experience and her identification with her audience was really important in in being able to tell the story and art- articulate the business and the opportunity. But her gender as a woman didn't detract in any means from the interest that she was received from investors from the traction that the company has been able to build since inception. Right, a good idea is a good idea. I mean, at the, at, at some level I feel like uh even even if the deck is stacked against you, money talks even in an, even in a finance or a technology industry that may have societal obstacles, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As a as a fund, we we have concentrations obviously in certain industries uh like, uh, as I mentioned, marketplaces like e-commerce, like HR tech, we have found that, you know, our our idea is to invest in being lucky enough to work with and support the best entrepreneurs, regardless of the industry that she is creating a business in. 
and the uh, the opportunities that our founders are uh, are capitalizing on tend to be ones that they have uh, they have worked in or they have interest in before. And they they can include things like e-commerce, where you know one of our portfolio companies primary sells uh, you know primary onesies and sort of uh, basics for kids that stemmed out of a real need from the from the CEOs. So I also want to talk about sort of the uh, uh, women in finance and, and sort of move this a little bit closer toward, I mean, this is an M&A podcast uh, after all. First question for you is, I mean, your job's also male-dominated. And so what has it been like for you to sort of enter this VC world where, again, women are certainly in the minority? Absolutely. So I think in it in VC and in finance uh, and all, VC specifically, you're also seeing a uh, – an interesting phenomenon where at the entry level and at the analyst and associate uh, stages, which I, I was at uh, before, you know, you, you do have more parity in terms of the number of men and women. And, and, and as you get up into the partner level, you're just not seeing as many female partners across funds. And for us, it hasn't been a problem in terms of getting the right deal flow and being uh, getting into the companies that we're, we're excited to invest behind. But Within the industry, it's also something that funds are focusing on, that you need that diversity of opinion within the partnership to be, be able to spot the opportunities that uh, may be non-obvious at the outset. And let's talk a little bit about exits uh, for, for, for these companies. Since you're, as a seed investor, I mean, you're, you're investing in companies primarily, if not completely, started and, and run by the founders themselves. So when it comes time for... Uh, a founder to sell, if that's ultimately what the exit is. I mean, I realize you just joined the, the female founders fund, so I'm not sure how, how many exits you've seen at this point. But I'm curious, is it something that they're thinking about when they're speaking to you? Or is the idea of exiting so far off that really none of these founders are really talking about leaving the business when they're having discussions with you? For us, we want to invest in businesses where there is going to be an outcome, right? That's how we make money. That's how we make re- return uh, money to our investors. So, are you asking them, like, are you willing to sell the business? That type of question. Yeah, it doesn't. It's it's not as it's not as sort of cut and dry as that. Yes, most people are willing to sell the business and want to sell the business at a point where it's a meaningful exit, right? So, we're investing in businesses where there, we think there can be a really large outcome for the company, and and it's important to make sure that that's aligned at the outset when you invest so that, uh, you know, seven years down the line, 10 years down the line, when you've built a big business, you don't have, um, you remain on the same page in terms of knowing that there's there's either liquidity in the public markets or uh, an attractive M&A scenario that everyone on the board would be happy to uh, to take. And has there been any pushback in any of your experiences among founders that just sort of say like, look, at, in other words, I can imagine at the end, if you're a founder, it goes one of two ways. And in fact, really, even non-founders that are running companies, either you're happy to sell or you're unhappy to sell. And so I'm I'm curious if, you know, as, as sort of the topic of M&A comes up, is it typically something that you aspire to or is it something that you're trying to avoid as a founder? Obviously, for you, you want an exit. But as a founder, I'm, I could see that going either way. 
if you're a founder and you want to hold on to the business that you started into perpetuity, those tend to be what we term lifestyle businesses and VC parlance. And that's not a, a derogatory term, but that's more of a business that you run as part of your life. I see. Typically, in those cases, if you don't have alignment on the out at the outset and know that this founder wants to run the business for the next 20, 30, 40, whatever have you years and, and typically run it for cash, it's not a venture investable opportunity. Sutian Dong, founder at Female Founders Fund. Uh, very interesting discussion about the opportunities uh, that women present as entrepreneurs and, in fact, in uh, venture capital. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, you can expect more Bloomberg reporters and uh, deal professionals who are doing transactions real time on future episodes. And until then, Find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And also take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949 and Shanali Basic at Shanali Basic. That's at S-O-N-A-L-I-B-A-S-A-K. And next week, we've got private equity partner and Charter Communications board member Eric Zinterhofer uh, on the show. Of course, Charter's trying to get approval to acquire Time Warner Cable in one of the biggest deals of last year. Should be a good episode. See you then. We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg m and reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime, we showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This bi-weekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.